From the studios of Boise State Public Radio News, I'm Gemma Gaudette. You're listening to Idaho Matters. And it's Friday, which means it's time for our reporter roundtable. This is when we get you updated on all of the news that made headlines this last week. A lot to get to today. And our panel includes Clark Corbin with Idaho Capital Sun, Brian Clark, Idaho Statesman Opinion Writer, our very own James Dawson with Boise State Public Radio News, Sadie Dittenberg, reporter with Idaho Ed News, and Nate Eaton, news director at eastidahonews.com. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Friday, Jimma. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Well, lots to get to, as I mentioned. Um, but Nate, before we dig into everything going on at the legislature, I want to start with you because a big change, some big news coming in the Lori and Chad Daybell murder cases. Yeah, this has been uh, something that has been joined. Both of their cases have been joined since they were indicted back in 2021. So years ago, and the trial is set to get underway in one month in Ada County. Chad's attorney has tried twice before to have the cases severed. He believes that they should have their own trial. And the judge has rejected those requests until yesterday. And the reason is because, uh, according to the judge, some evidence was just turned over. DNA evidence was just uh, received back from a lab. And Chad's attorney says, I don't have time to get my expert to evaluate this. I don't have time to look over it. The trial is in four weeks and I need more time. And the judge agreed with him. And Lori's uh, attorney specifically noted that they would have asked for more time to review this DNA evidence, except Lori Daybell has not waived her right to a speedy trial. She is. Mm. She wants the trial. She wants it done. She wants it uh, finished. And so that trial is set to go as far as we know on April 3rd. But as we've learned with this case, anything could happen between now and then. So, Nate, talk to us about um, what the trial will will look look like if it goes a a month from today, April 3rd, Um, because it is it will be in Ada County. um, But it will be this judge who made that decision, correct? Yeah, it will be this judge and it will be, um, this trial will be shorter than it's anticipated when they were going to be combined together. They said Mm -hmm. up to 10 weeks, but because there's now just one defendant, then you remove one complete party. You remove Chad and his attorney. So that attorney will not participate in jury selection, will not cross-examine, will not have witnesses. So it will no longer be 10 weeks. I don't know you know, how much shorter it will be, uh, but it will be, Lori will be there with her attorneys. The judge will be there. Uh, the jurors will be picked from Ada County. And I could imagine within the next month or so, those jury summons will start going out. Of course, those won't specifically say it's this case, but they mm-hmm. will begin to start um, you know, soliciting juror uh, potentials. And then uh, the trial will begin. As of now, the judge is still not allowing cameras or live audio feed. Uh, we have made a, an official request for him to reconsider. But if that doesn't happen, there will be no um, you know, live broadcasting of it. And the trial will begin uh, beginning of April and could be done maybe by the end of the month, maybe by mid-May. Well, and it's and it's interesting too, Nate, because I am assuming that this this trial is going. I mean, this case has had so much national and international attention. So even without cameras in the courtroom, I I am going to make an assumption that there's still going to be a very large media presence. Oh, yeah. Several national outlets have told us that they plan to be there regardless of if there's cameras or not. And and 
They might, you know, post transcripts of what happens. They'll have uh, reporters in the courtroom, you know, reporting on what's going on. What will be interesting is is the prosecution has said all along that the witnesses and the evidence are exactly the same for both Chad and Lori. Chad's mm. legal team and Chad could pay attention to everything that Lori that happens at her case. I mean, they will get a sneak preview of what their trial will be and and they'll be able to form a defense around what the prosecution, you know, presents here. So that that does kind of present an interesting turn of events, but but really Lori's t- legal team is stuck because she has said consistently, I want my trial, I want this to be to go through and they are arguing that they need more time, but ultimately it's up to the defendant to decide. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the Ada County Courthouse is making preparations already for this, knowing that it will take up not just physical space, but but the amount of time it will take as well. And and with that said, I mean, now there will be yet another trial uh, that, that will be in Ada County. This is Chad's. So has the judge made any decision on when that, that uh, when Chad's trial could now begin. No, he is not. And uh, Chad's attorney has said he wants it a year from now. So he wants it next April. And mm. uh, the the judge said that because it's working with Ada County and they're so busy with more trials there, that the, at the earliest, the judge thinks this could happen would be later this year. So I, I think what you might see is uh, they might schedule Chad's trial for later this year or spring of next year. And then his case could kind of, you know, go quiet for a bit while mm-hmm. the focus is on Lori's. And who knows, it's possible that after Lori's happens, maybe Chad takes a plea agreement. Maybe Lori could still take a plea agreement. All of those options are still on the table. But uh, mm-hmm. as we get down to the wire here, it will be interesting if this thing finally proceeds. Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, we're all waiting to see what, what happens come April 3rd. All right. With that said, let's head over to the legislature um, because uh, seriously, I don't even know where to begin. There, There is so much that's been going on over there. So let's start with this push to ban minors from attending drag, burlesque, or strip shows. And I know so many of our panelists covered this issue and has, has been covering it. Um, so Clark, why don't, why don't you set us up, but Jimmy and Brian, please chime in as well so that we can all understand this, this broader bill and what's going on. Yeah. Thanks, Gemma. And and everybody else can, can jump in as well. Cause I know everybody's been covering this, but, uh, yeah, there's a bill in the Idaho legislature that would restrict minors, would restrict children from attending live performances uh, that include uh, sexual conduct. And the author of the bill, the Idaho Family Policy Center, which is a conservative Christian uh, group, has said that this doesn't target any specific type of live performance, but it would apply equally to drag shows, burlesque shows, and erotic dancing. And if you remember thinking back a year ago, uh, the Idaho Republican Party uh, called for a boycott of businesses that were sponsoring the Boise Pride Festival that was taking place mm-hmm. in September 2022 in downtown Boise. Eventually, a number of businesses did uh, pull their sponsorships from Boise Pride. And about that same time, Idaho Republican Party chairwoman uh, Dorothy Moon was c- calling um, for these boycotts, but also the Idaho Family Policy Center pledged to come forward with a bill that would uh would restrict these these drag shows in 
uh, public spaces. And so that's where we're at today. It would do a couple of things. It would prevent um, any kind of live shows that fall under the definition of this bill from being performed at public property. That could include city, county, or state parks or performing arts centers. It would also require the organizers and promoters uh, to restrict minor children from attending. Uh, the punishment would be it would open it up so that children or their parents would be allowed to sue uh, for $10,000. And this was a really controversial bill that people have said uh, raises all, all sorts of questions about violating free speech rights that are guaranteed mm -hmm. in the Bill of Rights. Uh, but it's also been said that it targets drag shows uh, in particular because of some language in uh, the bill that defines sexual conduct as sexually provocative dances or gestures performed with accessories that exaggerate male or female primary or secondary sexual characteristics. But it was interesting in the hearing Yesterday, a number of drag performers came out to the Idaho State Capitol, testified in opposition of the bill, and said this bill really mischaracterizes drag and the art form uh, that is drag, and it further alienates the LGBTQ community, and it also puts all live public performance at risk, is what opponents of this bill said. Mm -hmm. um, it's been rewritten. It's now heading to the Idaho House floor for a vote. But uh, I'll step back for a second and let some of the other reporters talk about the implications of the bill or some of the public testimony that we heard yesterday. Yeah. And Jimmy, can I ask this? I mean, I, I think, um, you know, Clark mentioned that a lot, some of the uh, people in opposition said this could put in jeopardy all public performances. And I think about um, plays that let's say come to the Morrison Center, right? Like let's say a play like Hairspray, that's drag. Uh, let's say the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. There are female characters who play male characters. There are male characters that play female characters. I mean, a lot of Shakespeare is written that way. So, I mean, has there been any acknowledgement uh, of that? Because it very well could could you know go that broad when you put something like that on the books. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because I've I've seen and and heard from other reporters in other states that uh, I, I believe it was Tennessee, for example, where uh, you know Shakespeare has been uh, at risk uh, because of that state's law, um, and, and that was acknowledged by Blaine Kanzati, who's the president of the Idaho Family Policy Center, uh, during its initial introductory hearing, saying you know there's nothing in here that would actually prevent um, those sorts of performances from happening. Um, you know, but it's, it's still a concern for, for, you know, certainly some, um, you know, it, I, I haven't actually gotten a chance to read the, the new bill that was introduced earlier this week. I, I only know the, the previous one. Um, so maybe mm -hmm. Clark would be better or Brian would have a better answer to this, but did the amendments, uh, in the new bill also take out, uh, the part where, any sort of public official who allows these performances to happen in public places, would they still be um, subject to a felony, perhaps? So so the uh, uh, th this is Brian, um, the the amendments uh, that were made were were pretty narrow and, and don't affect uh, any of, of that. Um, the, it basically had to do with an error that was uh, that was made in, in drafting, more or less. Um, mm the uh so so the um the 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 interesting thing about the language uh that Clark pointed out um as uh the statesman's editorial board has argued this week is that 
it it implicates not just performances that that are things like Shakespeare, where you have a a, a female character playing a man, um, or or vice versa. Uh, it, it it in fact uh, implicates just a, an incredibly broad um, set of of live performances, because um, so so what, what it says is is uh, that if the performance um, you know, includes exaggeration of uh, male or female primary or secondary se sexual characteristics, then it's at risk. Um, mm -hmm. Secondary sexual characteristics is an incredibly broad category that includes things like um, uh, women's breasts, but it also includes things like male, faci male facial hair, um, wide hips in women, uh, muscularity in men. So uh, a bodybuilding show, for example, highlights secondary sexual uh, sexual characteristics um so does singing um there there's there uh there is a, an incredibly broad set of um uh performance that is potentially implicated here and because the way the bill defines uh what is what what among that is um is sexually problematic uh mm -hmm. in, in a very vague way nobody can really be sure that they're safe from a lawsuit. And was there anything said, um, because what continues to come back to my mind is this idea of, you know, you're not allowing parents to make a decision, right? If a parent wants to take their child to a show, you're saying, no, that you can't. However, um, these are also the same legislators who have, who have rung the bell time and time again about my child, my choice. Right. If you don't want to get your kid vaccinated back during the pandemic, you didn't have to. You don't want him to wear a mask. Well, then that's your right. That's your choice. So, um, Brian, I mean, any any discussion of that at all? I would I would think that there are that there are opponents who are trying to call out the hypocrisy of this. Uh, yeah, there was quite a bit. Um, and there, there was there was an effort to remove that language um, and just proceed with a bill that. Uh, that basically says if it's obscene conduct in public, then uh, then it's not allowed. Incidentally, that's already illegal. Um, but that amendment was rejected. Uh, that that amendment was uh, proposed by Representative John Gannon. So, Clark, where are we now with the bill? Yeah, the new bill is House Bill two sixty five. I want to say, and it's coming to the Idaho House of Representatives for a vote on the floor. Uh, the House was still going today. Uh, when we join the, the, the segment. Uh, but I think it's likely to come up early next week for a vote on the House floor. And the House is kind of the first stop. So if it does pass the House, it would go on to the Idaho Senate for further consideration. So the House is just the first stop. If it passes there, then it would go to the Senate. The final stop would be Governor Brad Little's desk. But it was really interesting. A couple of parents had brought up sort of this idea that, yeah, the, the state is more than willing to stick up for parental rights uh, in any number of subjects except for this one. And, and one parent talked about how different parents have different standards for mm -hmm. what is acceptable. And that's evidenced anytime you might say, go see an R-rated movie at a theater or something like that. So really interesting uh, debate about the potential implications for this bill, which is really written broadly, um, but was really uh, characterized as mis misrepresenting what drag is as a, as a uh, performance art. Mm -hmm. 
Before we take a break, Sadie, I want to bring you into the conversation because there are also two bills that would impact libraries. Um, My understanding is that they would potentially fine libraries for allowing children to check out what is being deemed harmful materials. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, House Ed heard these two competing library bills on Wednesday. One was brought forward by Representative Jaron Crane of Nampa, and um, the other one was brought forward by the Library Association and Representative Jack Nelson. And the first one would, it prohibits harmful materials, which is defined pretty graphically in the bill text. And um, it would impose a $10,000 fine on a public school, public school or public library um, that was found guilty of having the harmful materials that fall into that definition. Um, and ultimately, the committee voted nine to eight to hold the bill. Um, but there was a lot of testimony on both sides. We had librarians in the committee who said that a $10,000 fine for a small library like one in Donnelly um, that mm-hmm. only has an operating budget of $70,000 would be pretty detrimental. And you had we had a lot of parents there who were saying that they found pornographic items in their libraries and obscene materials, and they don't want that, those books or images around their children. So um, it was a pretty heated debate, and the committee did vote nine to eight to hold the bill. And um, so it, it it's unclear whether or not that particular bill will come back, but it's pretty unlikely. Um, and then House Bill 227, the other one, was brought forward by Representative, J- Representative Jack Nelson again, and it is a little bit milder. It requires policies and um, it, re- it requires public libraries and school districts to implement policies um, surrounding the selection and removal of library materials and it also prohibits harmful materials but it doesn't include the civil or criminal criminal penalties for libraries Mm. or for librarians and there was a few librarians who testified in support of that legislation um one meridian library board trustee testified against it um for the reasoning that she doesn't believe that there is pornographic items in the libraries and just said it was basically unnecessary. Um, and then many of the people who supported the first bill actually testified against the second one, saying that it was watered down and it had no teeth in it. And um, there are no real repercussions for librarians or libraries that could violate potentially the policy. Um, so it was a it was a really heated debate on mm-hmm. Wednesday, and there was a lot of going back and forth between committee members, and um, there were a few testimonies who, that got pretty pretty heated. Um, but with that second bill, ultimately they adjourned before um, they could take a vote. So that's still up in the air. I talked to uh, the chairwoman of the committee, Representative Julie Yamamoto, afterward, and she said that. There could be talks between the two groups um, to maybe reconcile and create a new policy that would uh, take some from each or they could bring back one or the other or both. So that's kind of where it's at now. Okay, so I want to take this uh, next segment and talk about ESAs or educational savings accounts. Some folks call them vouchers. Um, So let's begin by unpacking this legislation. Um, Jimmy, can you start out, though, with this first bill, 1038, what it was proposing, 
but the fact that it is no longer even on the table. Right. So 1038 came on the Senate side from Senators uh, Brian Lenny and Tammy Nichols. And really, this legislation would have uh, created a significant change in the way that uh, public schools are funded. So basically, you would be able to apply if you were a parent to take um, part of the money that would normally go to your child's public school. And then that would go into a, a you know a different bank account, which you could then mm-hmm. use that money to pay for things like private school tuition, uh, which is why opponents refer to it as a voucher. Um, parents could have also used that for uh, things like homeschooling materials or private tutoring services, what have you. But their child could then you know not actually attend public school classes uh, if they took that money. Um, so this this has been, I don't know, I kind of describe it as one of the biggest tests of the newly formed uh, Idaho Freedom Caucus, uh, mm-hmm. just because this was one of their largest goals uh, of getting it across the finish line this session. And it did make it through a Senate committee, um, which was staffed by or, you know, filled by several members of the Idaho Freedom Caucus uh, in that particular committee. But then it uh, failed in the state Senate on Monday after a couple hours of debate. Uh, you know, Republicans were mixed on it. You had certainly the Freedom Caucus members voting for it, saying that, look, Idaho's public schools, their standardized test scores and and results are, are not great, um, which support or opponents of the bill said, really is chalked up to the fact that Idaho for the last several years has been the very last or uh, second to last Mm -hmm. state in the country for funding public schools on a per pupil basis. Um, But even Republicans, uh, as they were split, you know, you had, for example, Senate pro tem Chuck Winder um, basically saying that this is just uh, another, I mean, the quote is, uh, it's just another effort to transfer money from the public treasury to a select group of people that meet the requirements of the bill. Um, mm-hmm. You had, you know, the Senate education chairman, Dave Lent, uh, saying that this really conflicts with his conservative Republican values because, um, you know, state law does not require any sort of homeschooler or private school to report what curriculum they're teaching or, uh, you know, whatever test scores might be achieved by their students. So essentially, we wouldn't know uh, if this bill had passed whether or not uh, these alternative uh, education, you know, uh, uh, options for parents were actually even doing the job of educating the students with taxpayer money. Well, and with that said, Jimmy, I mean, there was uh, not only that, I mean, there was absolutely zero oversight in the sense of, uh, you know, if you wanted to put your kid in private school for people that already have their children in private school who can already afford for their children to be in private school, will would would then just get a financial kickback. And, and there's it's, no oversight. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that certainly was a, a big sticking point with opponents uh, that there was no means testing. So, you know, even if you're a family making a million bucks a year uh, and you send your kids to private school, you'd still get that same um, that same amount of money. Uh, but then also you, you bring up a, another interesting point that, um, you know, th- this is something that public school advocates have, have said would just, you know, essentially... Oh, what do I want to say? It, it would sort of siphon money away from public schools and, and really make them mm-hmm. even more anemic than they already are. Um, so it's 
just, you know, uh, it's a whole fraught issue and it's not going away, even though this particular bill uh, was defeated in the Senate. There are several other proposals out there floating around, whether, you know, in the heads of legislators that have yet to reach bill form or are about to Mm -hmm. hit bill form. Yeah. And with that said, Sadie, let's talk about these two other ESA bills that were debated after 1038 failed. So can you break this down for us? Because uh, things got really heated. Yeah. So on, I'll go back to Tuesday in House Ed. Um, The three, actually, three ESA proposals um, were talked about. So we had one from uh, Representative Jaron Crane of Nampa that is essentially, it falls under the Idaho College Savings Program um, and the 529 accounts. So there would be separate state-funded 529 accounts um, that would do pretty much achieve the same goal. This money could go toward um, private tuition and fees and um, essentially operate the same way as an ESA, but it's under an already existing program. The second proposal came from Representative Wendy Horman and Senator Lori Den Hartog, and it is similar in that it expands an existing program, the Empowering Parents Program, and it would create these $6,000 um, credits for up to 2,000 students. And this would be on an income basis, so it would prioritize low-income families as the, the first um, recipients of that money. And mm-hmm. uh, that one would sunset after five years. It had a built-in um, sunset after five years. And the third was from Representative Lance Clow, and it would create a separate program to serve an estimated 2,000 students. And um, that would be nearly $7,000 accounts, I believe. And he included uh, a, a different measure of accountability that wasn't included in the original Senate Bill 1038. And that would be to require recipient students to take a nationally normed test and to prove for their parents to prove to the State Department that their students are either performing at grade level or have um, had one year of academic growth within the past year that the money is being utilized. So then what happened with all of these bills? So the the House committee on Thursday had planned to hear um, all three of those for introduction, but mm-hmm. two of them were pulled. So the Empowering Parents um, ESA program was pulled and the 529 program, they were both pulled from the agenda. So only Representative Clow's ESA proposal was actually heard on Thursday. And um, there was, <laughs> it was, it was a pretty complicated and frustrated discussion. Um, mm-hmm. There was a lot of frustrations within the committee about the same um, concerns that Jimmy outlined earlier. But also we had Representative Greg Lanting, who's from the same district as Representative Clow. And he was concerned that if the, if the ESA proposal was introduced um, and was printed, that the it would not return to the House Education Committee. And so essentially the 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 House leadership would have the discretion to assign that to a different committee after it's printed, even though it was introduced by the House by House Education. So um Lanting and some others were concerned that it wouldn't appear back before the House committee for them to have the final decision before sending it to the House and that it could be sent to a different committee. 
um, before uh, that would that would potentially pass it more easily. Um, so it mm. did. Uh, they did decide to um, to reject that bill, and they did not. Um, they did not end up printing it. Yeah, and, so, and one interesting oh, thing about uh, yeah, sorry about that. But one interesting thing about uh, the proposal from uh, Senator Lori Den Hartog and, and Representative Wendy Horman that Sadie mentioned is uh, Horman is co-chair of JFAC, which you know oversees mm-hmm. all of the spending, and part of her proposal would use twelve million dollars of Governor Brad Little's requested thirty million dollars for empowering parents. Which, uh, you know, in a press conference uh, that he held earlier this week, you know, he w- he was not too stoked about that. Uh, his quote was, in essence, they're taking food out of the mouths of a program we know is going to work. Uh, so it, it, that sets up a, a whole lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, consternation, I'm, I'm sure, behind mm-hmm. the scenes. So, Jimmy, if I'm understanding this correctly, this that that money um it would basically once again be used for private education. So you're shrinking the budget of uh, for for these grants that parents can use for their kids who go to public school. Is is that accurate? Uh, yes. So this would not take any money out of the existing K through twelve budget, right. but it would take money. Yes, out of the Empowering Parents Grant Program, which has been funded uh, in two different rounds with uh, federal coronavirus relief money. Yeah. So where so so right now, um, Jimmy, no, no ESA bills are are out there, but the session isn't over yet. Oh, no. And uh, as Sadie mentioned, House Education is what's called a privilege committee, which means they can introduce bills anytime, uh, whereas other committees, you know, that deadline's long, well and past. So, mm. you know, w- we could see something right up until the end. Okay. And and Brian, your editorial board of the Idaho Statesman wrote an article recently where you say vouchers are not school choice. Can you explain this? Um, so our argument is that Idaho already has a, a wealth of school choice, uh, including public charter schools, uh, the ability to homeschool, um, the ability to go to private school, I- any number of options. Uh, the key thing with, with ESAs and other forms of vouchers is that they take a, a stream of taxpayer revenue um, and they move it into private hands. Now, it's a uh, one way that the proponents will try and try and uh, spin this is to say that, mm-hmm. well, what we're doing is just allowing taxpayers to keep their money. But that's not true at all. Um, according to census data, about two thirds of households in Idaho do not have school aged children. They are nonetheless paying uh, the majority of taxes for education. Um, so. The, the, it, it, that's an important distinction to make. Uh, this is uh private fund or or public funding that would be moved into private hands. That's the key feature of the voucher. It's not choice. Mm, Okay. So Nate, um, an Eastern Idaho teenager is missing and she's been missing since early January. I know that you were able to speak with her mom who reported her missing, but what are police saying about this? I mean, are they actively searching for her because we're what it's two months since she's been, since she's been heard from. Yeah, this is an interesting story. Uh, the mother of this girl uh, was a member of the FLDS religion, and they lived in uh, southern Utah. And the the mother was banished from the community years ago um, for for having a miscarriage. 
they said that she had killed a, a baby. She had killed her unborn baby. And so she was banished and told to move to Nebraska. And that's where she ended up. And since then, she has been fighting to get her children back. Uh, one of them is now an adult, and she was granted through a long series of custody disputes here in Idaho. She ended up moving back to Montague, Idaho, here in eastern Idaho. She was given full custody of uh, her four other children, but the one uh, ran away on New Year's Day, took her mom's car, and vanished. The car was later found abandoned at a gas station, and this mother is fully convinced that this girl has returned to the FLDS religion. Um, police have done, have said that they have looked for her. Uh, the issue is that on all of these leads, when investigators show up, the girl isn't there. And it, and the mother fully believes that this girl is being uh, transferred from home to home to home in the FLDS community and that different members are sheltering her. She's 16 years old. And uh, the mother is, of course, very concerned that they mm -hmm. might try to marry off her daughter. And uh, maybe, you know, have her start on a new life somewhere that she would have no idea where she is. So it's kind of an interesting story that uh, really has uh, this mother frustrated that she can't get her daughter back. Yeah, it just it sounds heartbreaking. Um, Clark, I want to head back to the Idaho legislature um, because there are some legislators who want to bring back the firing squad. Can you tell us why they're looking into this as an option. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's a little bit of context here, but right now the only form of capital punishment that's allowed in Idaho is the lethal injection. And Idaho has an inmate on death row right now uh, named Gerald Pizzuto, who is scheduled to be executed March 23rd. We've, we've been through this before. Um, there was an earlier date set for December 15th, but the state of Idaho was not able to obtain the chemicals necessary to carry out a lethal injection. Mm. Um, the state does not have pentobarbital and is unable to get it, according to the testimony from an Idaho deputy attorney general who spoke in committee um, earlier this week. And so state of Idaho is not able to get these lethal injection chemicals. The state's not alone. Uh, they're saying that manufacturers and suppliers won't provide them anymore because of a public backlash. Um, when records come out about companies uh, or manufacturers providing these chemicals, there's a public backlash. And so that's kind of the reason that's been given that the state is not able to obtain the lethal injection chemicals. And so Representative um, Bruce Scrogg has brought a bill forward, House Bill 186, that would add the firing squad as an alternative method of execution for the state of Idaho to use in the event when lethal injections are unavailable. And so this bill passed out of committee uh, on Wednesday, and it's heading to the floor of the Idaho House of Representatives for a vote. But there was a long uh, technical discussion uh, about the bill, about the change that happened earlier this week. Um, but that's where it's coming from. And firing squad is is pretty rare from some of the testimony yeah. that we heard on Wednesday that there have only been three people executed in the United States by firing squad since the 1970s, since the moratorium was lifted, and all three of them took place in the state of Utah. I think there's three other states right now that have added the firing squad, but it's a very rare 
form of execution. Um, Idaho had always used hanging as its form right. of execution, uh, but then that changed to lethal injection in 1978. Interestingly, in 1982, Idaho actually added the firing squad as an alternative, but never used it and then did away with it again in 2009. So Idaho has been kind of back and forth on this issue, but it's it's interesting with the timing of it because there are eight people, I believe, uh, on death row who've been convicted of murders, who've been sentenced to execution, and one of them is scheduled right now and the issue is, yeah, that the state has not been able to obtain the chemicals to carry out a lethal injection. We've had officials from the Idaho Attorney General's office saying that essentially Idaho may not be able to carry out any more executions unless we make a change because they don't feel like they're able to obtain these chemicals. And so they said it's sort of a de facto end to the death penalty in Idaho. But a couple of years ago, Ruth Brown, when she was at the Idaho Statesman, did a really interesting article where she uh, had looked at some records that were available from a lawsuit following the most recent lethal injection case in Idaho about 10 years ago that talked to all the steps that the Department of Correction director and officials had to take, including like flying to a Tacoma parking lot with a bag Mm -hmm. full of cash to obtain these lethal injection drugs. Um, so yeah, it, it's an interesting story and an interesting debate. Um, and uh, it's something that we'll continue to watch, but it's heading to the Idaho house floor for a vote at any time, really, it could be taken up uh, and it's house bill 186 is the one to look for if you're interested in that one. And if it passes, then what happens, Clark? Yeah, so it just takes a simple majority of votes in the Idaho House to pass. And then if it passes there, it would go on to the Idaho Senate. And the process would kind of start over again. We would anticipate there would be a public hearing uh, in a Senate committee. And then if it advanced out of the Senate committee, it would go to the Senate floor, where again, uh, it would take a simple majority uh, of members of the Idaho Senate to pass that So if it passes the Idaho House, makes its way all the way through the Idaho Senate and passes there, then it would go to Governor Brad Little's desk for final consideration. And it's really interesting because we know the governor has a role to play in death penalty cases and executions. When you look at appeals and and different things like that, the governor is involved in the chain of command. Uh, And so that will be a really interesting one uh, to watch as we move we mm-hmm. move forward. The way the firing squad bill is written is it wouldn't take effect until July 1st. And that other execu- that execution is planned for, I think, you know, three weeks essentially from today. So it's a little unclear what's going to happen in the short term. Uh, but if that bill passes, it wouldn't take effect until July 1. But then we heard testimony about once the bill passes, then it's only a beginning because then the Department of Correction would have to outline all these new policies and procedures for how the state would carry out an execution by firing squad, uh, which has never happened in the state of Idaho. So it could be a long, uh, nuanced road to travel uh, before we get some final resolution on this. Well, and and Clark, I mean, as you mentioned, Idaho has a a very kind of long and twisted road with, with the death penalty in, in the, in regards to, um, you know, how it is, is, is played out. You know, we've, as you mentioned, hanging and, and then, then uh, firing squad and then lethal injection. And even with hanging, there were so many issues with that uh, because 
it's a lack of experience, right? I mean, not to be morbid, but I would assume we would potentially run into this same issue um, again. Yeah, and there have been concerns uh, across the country about issues with lethal injection and whether it's cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, there was testimony this week in, in the bill on the firing squad about whether that would be cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, there's a lot of concerns about the death penalty, about capital punishment in America and uh, that all that all crept into the testimony, uh, as you would expect. But yeah, concerns with hanging, concerns with lethal injection and, and cruel and unusual punishment, concerns with firing squad, also concerns with firing squad about if it had to be carried out uh, by Department of Corrections officials and and how difficult that could be. Um, but the, yeah, a, a lot of somber and solemn questions uh, yeah. to be debated as the state works out. Um, its policy and how it's going to handle this execution, which, which um, uh, you know, is scheduled to come in, in, into play in, in, in immediately. And so uh, a lot of real world implications here, not just an idea on paper uh, in terms of a bill, but uh, a very real process uh, that's in the process of playing out. Uh, we have about four minutes left. Want to get to a couple of things. Sadie, talk to us about a push to make positions on the State Board of Education um, elected positions. So there was a bill heard earlier this week um, from Representative Joe Alfieri, um, and it's House Bill 204, and it would have created seven regional state board districts to essentially elect the state board members to the state state board of education, um, which is currently those are governor appointed positions and Mm -hmm. Uh, the reasoning from the sponsor and then from also Brandon Durst, who testified in support of the legislation, was that they want to make it more um, more even on the board, which they say is an, an inherently political institution um, where there can be they wanted to make it so there could be minority parties represented and all regions of the state represented. Um, and Brandon Durst talked about how, um, he, when he was a lawmaker in 2007, he was a Democrat in the House and he pushed for this legislation, um, but was not successful. And so they're bringing it back now. And, um, members of the minority party talked, um, a little bit in the meeting about their concerns with the legislation and specifically of making the State Board of Education a, um, partisan race, um, and an election. Mm-hmm. And saying that uh, concerns with that are numerous, essentially, and they they don't feel that it would um, lend any more support to the minority party to have um, an elected state board of education position. So where is this bill right now? Um, it died um, in committee, okay. so they, they voted against it. Okay. We are out of time. I'm sorry we did not get to everything that happened this week, but so much um, going on this week. I want to thank all of our uh, panelists today for taking time out of your really busy schedules. We've been talking with Clark Corbin with the Idaho Capital Sun, Brian Clark, Idaho Statesman Opinion Reporter, our very own James Dawson with Boise State Public Radio News, Sadie Dittenberg, Reporter with Idaho Ed News, and Nate Eaton, News Director at EastIdahoNews.com. I encourage all of you to... Um, find all of these journalists and follow them and read their reporting. We have some fabulous journalists in this uh, state. So thank you all very much. Have a great weekend. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks. Take care, Gemma.
Thanks so much for listening to Idaho Matters. Boise State Public Radio and Idaho Matters are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gemma Gaudet. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies.